it's great to be with all of you. Um, you know, first time can be a mistake, you know, but uh, thank you for uh, a second time back. Uh, I love being back and being with all of you. Uh, feel like God's put, put a word on my heart for you, and I'm really excited to share that. But first, I just want to say thank you for your prayers and your support. As even Julie shared, uh, a Nyack College graduates, um, we are just so pumped to be able to train and raise up leaders for the next generation, uh, for our denomination and for the global church. Now, last year, I think I shared with you a story about one of our students. Uh, <clears throat> I think the communion wafers put a little crick in my throat. <laughs> Can I ask for a bottle of water? <clears throat> Uh, Yusuf, he graduated, went on to Palestine. He's from Gaza, if you know what that's like. Uh, extremely challenging place, but the Lord led him to our seminary. He got trained. He went back a year ago, and he came back a few weeks ago to share with us that he's now a professor at Bethlehem Bible College. What's really interesting is how they are, thank you so much, Patty, how they are using online uh, teaching to teach in Arabic theology to people all over the Middle East, people in countries that you and I would never dream are believers or dream that they would want theological education are getting theological education in Arabic. It's absolutely amazing. We have another student who actually works as the assistant in the missions department. Again, it's just another story of how God connects all these various dots. She is from the Shandong province in China, uh, moved to Beijing to go to uh, college, and while she was in Beijing, she meets these Korean missionaries who are doing campus ministry, missionaries, right? We're doing campus ministry in uh, her school, gives her heart to Jesus, and then is part of this Korean church plant, and they connect her to Alliance Seminary, and where she was serving at a Korean church in Fort Lee, New Jersey, if you know where that's like. And she's been attending our seminary, and now she's coming to our Ridgeway Alliance Church. Absolutely amazing. So think about that. A Chinese young gal led to the Lord by Korean missionaries and now coming to our seminary to be trained to reach the global church. Absolutely fantastic. You have another student. One last student uh, I'll tell you about. Uh, she is from Colombia, from Latin America, right? She is a Spanish-speaking Latina uh, gal uh, from an Alliance Church background, felt the call of God, came to our seminary, do you know where she wants to go? She wants to go to the Middle East. She has a heart for Muslim peoples, and uh, she even, for the last several years, every year she's been going to Jordan to work with Syrian refugees that have left Syria and are now residing in Jordan. Absolutely amazing, right? And so while she's in the U.S., she's working and serving at um, Alliance Arabic Language Church in Brooklyn. You think about that. Like, how amazing is God? Right? So somehow these uh, Muslim women, literally in their hijab, in their head coverings, have just really taken to this Latina girl who looks like them. And uh, she's a wonderful witness to the kingdom. So as the Lord reminds you of us, please pray for us. Please pray for the amazing work that our seminary is doing in raising up missionaries like Julie many years ago and continuing to do so today. All right, you ready? I got to go. I'm going to be preaching today from the book of Jonah. Now, I don't know how many of you have read the book of Jonah lately, but this is an amazing, action-packed, 
a beautiful book just in a few short verses, short, short chapters. I'm going to be preaching from the entire book. So I'll read the first few verses from chapter 1, and then I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 4, and hopefully it will joggle your memory and, and remind you of everything you learned in Sunday school. All right? Here's the first few verses of Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now jump to chapter 4, verse 1. After he goes to Nineveh, preaches the gospel, and the people get saved, right? And then in verse 1, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding love, a God who relents from selling calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Will you pray with me? Lord, we open our hearts to you. You know what your people need. We pray that you would take these verses and make it come to life in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our theme this year for Missions Month is the heart of mission is love, right? It answers a question. All these statements answer a question. What is the question that we're trying to answer? It is, what is the primary motivator from which we engage mission? What is the primary motivator from which we engage in mission? And so what Simpson was doing when he coined that phrase is he was reacting to a host of other motivators that are very popular, right? He's saying it's contra-targets. It's contra-strategy. It's contra-objectification of people. But he's saying it has to flow out of love. It's very important for us to get that right. Because there's a host of metaphors that we use in our daily lives, right? Without even thinking about it. But, for example, we say time is money, right? So we think of time as currency. And so much of doing that when we import an image to describe, a metaphor to describe another entity, we use the worlds of that image and import the meaning from that in how we see this Initial thing. So when we see time, now we see it as something that we spend, something and things that we want to invest so that we can make money out of it, right? So time has become so much more than just, you know, clock. It's become money. We do the same thing with a bunch of other things. For example, how many of you have bought like a lean cuisine from Walmart and then you stick it in the microwave and what do you do? You? You nuke it. You zap it, Right? Think about the metaphor. Like, oh, wait, wait, wait. How did nuclear bombs get involved in microwaving food? Right? But, but this is like all over in so much of the way we think, right? Think about how we talk about uh, somebody who's extremely successful, right? So you go to a businessman. You say, man, this guy is killing it. Killing it? What are you talking about? He's just making money. 
But we go, oh, he's just crushing it, right? So all of a sudden, we use these very violent imagery to communicate what we think is true, right? We do the same thing with ministry, don't we? Huh? We talk about what? Winning souls to Jesus. What game are you playing? Right? It's like the, the image is what? Of an arm wrestling match. And you're like, oh, I just convinced him. I won him over to Christ. Really? You won somebody over to Christ? But here's where it gets difficult, right? Because the metaphors we use posture us to inform our methodology. Because if you're trying to win somebody, guess what? You go work out and make some muscles and then you come and defeat them, right? And it informs how you engage people. And that's why we can't let go of this primary metaphor that Simpson is talking about, which is that it should flow out of love. Here is a quote. I'm going to read you a quote from a presentation back from 1910 in Edinburgh World Missionary Conference. This is the largest gathering at that time of the world's leaders, evangelical leaders, to talk about world evangelization. There was one person in this amazing august gathering, John Armott was the chair of that event. It was held in Edinburgh, and there was one person who was uh, from the majority world. He was Indian. And he was the only non-Anglo person to speak at this conference, right? So he gets up to speak, not necessarily from the missionary perspective, but from the missionized perspective, so to speak. And he gives this speech. And let me read you a quote from it. He says, through all the ages to come, the Indian church will rise up in gratitude to attest the heroism and self-denying labors of the missionary body. He says, you have given your goods to feed the poor. You have given your bodies to be burned. We also ask for love. Give us friends. Can you imagine how it is that we can engage in mission, plant churches, do amazing things, do raise up leaders, if you wish, and do it without love? That's why it's so crucial that we get this straight. So thank you, Glenn, and the mission team for for identifying love as the central part. There are two things that I want to make comments on before we dive into the text. First, when we look at this, we can think of this from a human perspective, right? Which is, we in our mission work need God's love in order to reach others, right? So it can be a very, what do we need to have in order that we reach others? But there's another part of this, which is the human perspective, but the other part is God's perspective. What does God think about all of this? Have you ever thought about that? What is God's heart towards lost people? What does God really think? It's not so much about me, but as much as so much about God. What is God doing here, right? That's the first comment. Secondly, so we want to look at God's perspective as we look at the book of Jonah. The second thing I want to say is usually when we preach, we tell people, focus on a particular passage, right? Dig into that particular verse, if you wish. Do word studies, language study, to try to dig in, to try to get at the meaning of what that scripture is saying so that people can go deeper in a particular text, right? This is what we might call the micro-focus, the micro-analysis of a particular passage. And that's incredibly valuable. 
But there is another perspective, perspective that's helpful for us, which is the macro perspective. What do we do with the macro? We zoom out. And you read the entire book of whatever gospel or book that you're reading. You read the entire thing and you look at the entire forest, not just the individual trees. And you say, oh, what exactly is going on here? And so when we do that, you can get the full grasp of the story. And that's really what I want to try to do today. But I want us to have a micro within the macro, which is I want us to look at the life of Jonah. I want us to look at the personality of Jonah. What is this guy like? Is he likable? Is he somebody that you want to, how many of you have kids named Jonah? It's a great name, all right? Although, unlike everything I'm going to say today, it's still a great name, right? But think about this individual. What is his character like? What is his personality like? Let's dive in. The book of Jonah is fast moving, right? Four parts in the four chapters. Part one, I'm going to call it the call and the run, right? Part two, it's praying in the belly of the fish, right? Part three is prophets preaching the message and people repenting. It's a wonderful chapter, right? And then you get to chapter four, and here what I'm going to call it is suicidal prophet and the grace of God. Which part do you want to listen to most? Right? Let's dive in, right? Chapter 1, verse 1, it begins by saying what? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Folks, notice first of all, it's God's initiative in the call. God sending the word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's very important. A lot of the prophets use this phrase, but it reminds us the starting point of mission, the starting point from where everything flows. It doesn't start in a boardroom, amen? It doesn't start with some guys wearing suits and gals wearing suits sitting around and saying, let's reach these people for Jesus. No, it starts with God's initiative. And it's extremely important that we get this right. It is God who initiates. This is God's work. He invites us to join him in his work. Y'all know what I mean? It's very easy for us to get this wrong. You know why? I remember I was 19 years old. I was in Bible school. I was extremely energetic and passionate as even more so back then, right? So we would have these revival meetings and the flags would come out like it did today, right? And we would run to the flags and grab the flags and start praying for the nations. And of course, what do I do? I'm an Indian kid born in Kuwait, you know, lived in America for 15 years. I would just go, I had to like pick one, right? There was no Indian American Kuwaiti flag, right? So I was like, all right, I've got to pick one of my identities. So I just went to India, right? So I went to Indian flag, I would cry, you know, <clears throat> And just move it back and forth and say, God, I'm praying for India, the salvation of India in my lifetime. God, I'm praying, give me India or I die. You've heard that kind of prayers, right? These great Scottish missionaries would pray that. And then somehow I grew up and I realized, man, there was a lot of Stanley in that prayer. Right? There was a lot of me in there, right? Ah, give me India or, you know, and thank God for the people who've prayed that before. But for me, it was like, okay, wait, Jesus has been building his church for 2,000 years. You showed up on the scene and now you want to finish the task in 50, 60, 70 years of your life? You know, it's God who initiates, right? God might call some of us to be a Billy Graham and reach millions, but it's the same God who called some of us to Appalachia, to a town of 350 people where God's called you to live there for the rest of your life. And your biggest megachurch, even if you have 50% of the population, is never going to make Christianity Today's articles, you know what I mean? But it's God who calls, and that's why we have to remember the ultimate, ultimate gauge measure for us is not success, but it's faithfulness to God's call. It is God, my friends, the first thing I want us to know is the loving heart of God 
invites us to join him in mission. Back in the day, they used to say something like, oh, the missionaries brought God to Africa. And then an African villager got up and said, no, 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 you got it wrong. The missionaries did not bring God to Africa. God brought the missionary to Africa. It's a very important corrective. You know why? It reminds us that God has preceded us in the work of mission. Amen? It is God who initiates the call. But then what do you see in verse 3? It explicitly says, and I'm going to talk really fast, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed in the opposite direction. God told him to go to Iraq. Modern day Iraq is where Nineveh is. And he boards the ship and goes for where? To, to, to Tarshish, which is, some people don't know exactly, I mean, they, we don't know exactly where it is, but most likely it's in Western Europe. So literally, he's in the middle. Go tell him to go, go over here, and he goes to the diametrically opposite direction, right? Literally, and then in chapter 1, verse 3, it reiterates. It doesn't just say he ran away. It says he is fleeing from the Lord. It says it two times in one, one verse. I mean, this guy is running. Here's the thing. Jonah is running away from what God is calling him to do. But the way that the verse is told to us is when he is running away from what God is calling him to do, it explicitly says he is running away from God. We think we are just saying no to God about doing something. But often when we do that, we are in fact running away from where God is and who God is also. We often do that. And then it says the Lord sent, he boards the ship, he pays the fare. Now that's another interesting thought, right? He boards the ship and pays the fare. So what did he do? He bought a ticket, right? Now I don't know about you, all of you work in various companies. All of you know what reimbursable expenses mean, right? This ain't one of those. Right? God is telling him, go one place. He goes to another. He charters a boat. Now, some of us might think, look, just buying a ticket. But notice, in the rest of the story, you see Jonah, you see sailors, you see a captain, but you don't see what? There's nobody else on board. There's no other merchants on board. So in many ways, he might have chartered this boat, paid the silver, hopped on board. This is an unreal, and he's willing to do it. That's the audacity of it. God is saying, I'll pay for your stuff. Do what I'm telling you to do. And he's saying, I'll pay my own way. I'm going to go do what I want to do. And you see this rebellion, right? You see this disobedience. But now he boards the ship. There is this great wind. And what is Jonah doing? Everybody and their uncle is praying, right? All the sailors are praying to their gods. The captain sees Jonah and this bud, our buddy, is sleeping below the deck. Notice, how can we sleep when we are running away from the Lord? This is interesting. Some of us can trick ourselves into saying, yes, but I feel the peace of God. I sleep like a baby at night, you know? Really? Just because you have peace. And now some of us stretch this a bit. I feel the peace of God to proceed. Oh, really? You could have peace and sleep when you're out of the will of God too, like little, you know, Jonah here. Right? And so he goes to sleep and they say, call on your God. Notice, what's so drastic when you read the whole book. In chapter 1, everybody is praying, but Jonah's prayer life is pretty non-existent. And he is the prophet. Right? You do not hear him pray at all in the entire first chapter. The first time he starts to pray is when? When he's in the belly of the fish. So they come to him and, all right, we got to do something about this. They cast lots, identify it's him. Then they're like, what do we do with you? And what does Jonah say? Throw me overboard. Think about this guy, right? 
he's first of all running away from the Lord. Now there's this huge storm and they've got to do something to alleviate the storm and save the lives of everybody. And what is he saying? Throw me overboard. Now, I can, if I would, would you say, would that be your go-to if you were Jonah? (laughs) If I was Jonah, you know what I would do? Well, he has a few options, right? One, he could have prayed. Till now, even this point, he hasn't prayed. If somebody told me, hey, we got to do something with you to take care of this situation, I'd be like, Jesus, please help me, right? (laughs) Jonah ain't praying. What does he suggest? Throw me overboard. He could have repented. He could have, he chartered the boat. He could have said, let's go to Nineveh, which is where I should have gone in the first place. He doesn't even alter the ship's course. He says, I would rather die than follow what God is saying to do. Think about that. And the first verse that we see at the beginning of chapter 2 or the end of chapter 1, 1 verse 17 is what? The Lord provided a big fish. Notice that? Notice, God provided the fish before Jonah prayed. I don't like that. Huh? I like, we think God should answer people's prayers after they have repented, isn't it? And here it is, before he even repents, a big Nemo is there swallowing him up. <laughs> right? Nemo's relative, right? But here he is, he is, in the, he is now in the fish, three days, three nights, and then he starts to pray. And there's this amazing prayer. Chapter 2 is this beautiful prayer. But notice, this is the only time in the book of Jonah where God's love is mentioned. And it is mentioned in the context of those who turn away from God will receive, will, will, will be rejected out. They won't experience God's love. The only place, again, it's in a place of negativity. And he finally, he repents and he says, I'll make my vows to the Lord. The Lord commands the fish, go spit him up, vomit him up. That's the word that's in my translation, vomit, right? Vomit him out. And then he goes and then it's see in chapter three, God comes to him a second time. It says the word of the Lord came to him a second time. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Here's the second thing. First is God who initiates. But secondly, Jonah, God's love keeps coming after us. He keeps pursuing us. God's love is persevering. God's love is patient. He gives us second chances, isn't it? Then what, well, then finally what you see here is this. The word of the Lord came. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches. It's easy for him to preach because you know what his message is? Y'all are gonna die. 40 days, y'all are gonna burn, right? And then he watch, he goes up the hill. He sits there and he wants to watch the city burn down to the ground. But what happens with the people? The people, starting with the lowest person up to the king, they all repent. And the king proclaims a fast. In sackcloth and ashes, they proclaim a fast. He says, let the cattle even fast. Don't give them water. And they all fast. They all repent. And what does the Bible say? God relented and he decided to forgive them. And that is where we get to chapter 4, where we see Jonah is upset. This is what it says in verse 4. This seemed very wrong. He became angry. And he says, isn't this what I said to you when I was still at home? I knew you'd be like that. I knew you were a God who was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, quick to relent from your judgment. Notice, Jonah foreseen the grace of God. Jonah's got his theology on right. 
right? This is really good theology. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding love, and quick to relent. This comes over over five, six times throughout the Old Testament. This is like a creedal form of declaration of who Yahweh is, who God is. He's got this down pat, and he is saying, I knew you'd be like that. Is it possible for us to have our theology on right and still harbor bitterness? Is it possible for us to get our theology right and still and plant a megachurch, if you wish, in chapter 3 of Acts? Peter preaches 3,000 get saved, 4,000 get saved, 5,000 get saved. He plants this megachurch, right? And still in chapter 10, he's got prejudice against Cornelius, right? He shows up at Cornelius' home. The sheets come down, sheets go up. He wakes up from his dream. He goes to Cornelius' home. Cornelius is like, tell us what God wants you to tell us. And what does he open his mouth and say? God told me that I shouldn't call you unclean. Oh, 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 so you've been thinking these dirty thoughts about us for how long? Is this a compliment? You're telling us about your repentance. So you've been racist towards us for how long? Right? Is it, you could be a pastor. You could be planted a megachurch. And you could still harbor these things in your heart. Is what we are told. And Jonah is resentful. What is this resent? What is this root of bitterness for him? Is it that he is so filled with Jewish exclusivity to the access to Yahweh that he's saying, I don't want these Gentiles coming to know God? Is it because the Assyrian Empire is later going to persecute Israel and lead them into slavery and lead them into exile that he doesn't want anything to do with them? What is this bitterness? Where is this anger coming from? And Jonah is angry, right? But notice the contrast. You see this God of graciousness and compassionate The people are repentant, but Jonah is angry. And Jonah goes out and builds the shelter, right? He wants to watch. And then you begin to see this interesting thing emerge. He is watching the city, and he's like ready for it to burn to death. And then you see this plant starts to grow. Overnight, this big leafy plant, he cushions up next to the plant as though he turns up the AC in his residence in Marriott, right? And he's sitting up next to it like, ooh, this is nice and cushy. Where's my little comforter, right? And he's happy. And then all of a sudden, next verse says, verse 7, God provided a plant. Verse 7, God provided a worm. Notice, same word that is used in chapter 1, verse 17, that God provided a big fish. And now God provided a worm. Next, verse 8, God provided a scorching east wind. All right, there was a plant, there was a worm that ate it up, and now this guy is like AC somebody turned off. The scorching wind has come through, and here's what he says. It would be better for me to die than to live. And God asks him, is it right for you to be angry? He says, it is. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. This happens three times. He is so suicidal, he would rather die. He says it three times in this book. I would rather die than not have my way. Can you imagine? How is it that this prophet has so much bitterness? In its clearest form, the book of Jonah is declaring a loving God, eager to save, eager to forgive, eager to relent, eager to give us second chances, and eager to minister to this reluctant prophet and suicidal prophet. But you see this gentleness of God. Notice the number of times God, the, this word providing is used, this provision is used. Imagine the forethought of God to know exactly where his body is going to hit the water and have Nemo ready. Like think about the foresight of God. 
the provision of God, the preparation of God, the appointment of God, that even a fish will obey and not chew him up and, you know, and spit him out of its gills, right? Even a fish will obey. Think about how much God provides for him. And then you see this gentleness of God. Is it right for you to be angry? He asks, God asks the question two times. Right? While the prophet is dying, God provides. While the prophet is complaining, God provides, wishing that he was dead. This is the compassion and the mercy of God. And then finally, you get to that last section, and God engages him in this conversation. I love how soft the Lord is, you know? I'm glad he is soft with us. Because the truth is, we are Jonah. We are that reluctant one, right? God says us something and we're like, uh, really God, I don't know. God tells us to do something, we go the other way. God does something in the world and we're upset because it wasn't our way. God wants to show grace and mercy to somebody and save them. And we think that's not justice. We want them to burn, right? And we have to look and say, how does God engage us? And you see the sweetness. God gives us, shows them this plant, and God says to Jonah, Jonah, you're concerned. Notice that word, concerned. You are concerned about this plant because you had comfort, and now your AC got turned off and your comfort is gone. And you think this is an issue of injustice, and you are so angry you're willing to kill yourself. You are concerned for the plant, but you do not do anything to make it grow. And God is saying, you're concerned about something so fickle, but I am concerned about 120,000 people in the city and their lassie, and their Paw Patrol, you know what I mean? And their Barney. God is saying, I care about their cattle. Their cattle fasted. God is saying, I care about their cattle, and you are concerned. Think about the word. God uses the same word. You are concerned about the plant. I am concerned about the people. Here's another moment where we see this amazing contrast. We see the prayers of the sailor and the sleep of the prophet, right? We see the eagerness of the Ninevites to obey, and we see the eagerness of the prophet to run away. We see the concern for the comfort for the prophet, and we see the concern for people living in darkness who don't know their right from their wrong. How vast the difference between how God thinks and how we think and feel sometimes, isn't it? Our feelings and our outrage and our concerns are sometimes so shaped by social media and the news and the people around us that sometimes we do not realize that we are mirroring the anger in society and we are not mirroring the heart of God. How vast the contrast between how God feels about something and our feelings. It should give us pause to pray and say, Oh God, search my heart. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. If you're a parent, you probably know I have a 15-month-old at home, you know. He had hands, foot, and mouth disease the other day. I thought my skin was peeling off, right? It's, it's, it's when you're somebody you care. And that's the concern that God is talking about. I am concerned when they hurt, my heart bleeds. And that is the heart, the contrast that we see. And in many ways, my friends, this story is really not the story of Jonah. 
right? This is the story of God. It is really the book of Jonah is got Jonah is a player in it, but the book of Jonah is really talking about the generosity of God, the initiation of God in inviting broken, wounded people like us to be part of his mission. It is the grace of God that gives us a second chance when we run away. And finally, it is the patience of God in conforming our hearts and aligning our hearts and rooting out the bitterness in our hearts and aligning our hearts to his so that we can be a blessing to the world. And that is why, my friends, we got a glimpse of this type of love, this type of forgiveness that God shows this week on TV, didn't it? Didn't we? With both him, Jean's brother, Brand, going down, stepping away from the stand and coming down and hugging the person that murdered his brother. And this is scandalous to us. Scandalous. Because how is this type of grace, and there's something beautiful about it, but at the same time, there's something repulsive about it. Right? And, and, and part of what Brandt showed us and his father later on showed us is that there is something about God that they have glimpsed that they are willing to reach out in grace and forgiveness. Remember, the question God asks Jonah is not, why are you angry? What are all the reasons for why you're angry? What God asks Jonah is, is it right for you to be angry? And for many of us, there are many reasons why we can say, I am so angry, I'd rather die. But what we see in God, what we see in the Gospels, what we see in the grace, what we see is the perseverance of God to take wounded, broken, hurting, hurtful people like us and mold us and make our hearts in the image of Jesus Christ. That is the grace of God. And in many ways, my friends, it is easy for us to think Jonah is about somebody else. We are Jonah. I am that reluctant prophet not eager to follow God. I am that person, right, who is not eager to turn to God in prayer. I am that person who is who has bitterness and rage and resentment and anger. And all along, what we see in God is someone who woos us. It's a son, come. Come, I'm here. And he keeps coming to us. And he keeps outstretching his arm. And he says, will you have my heart? Will you allow my heart to be implanted in yours? Will you pray with me? Lord, help us to have your heart. Lord, we confess that your heart is full of grace, love, compassion. Our theology is right, Lord, but it is so hard to live it. And sometimes we feel like holding on to anger is easier, but Lord, we confess that our metaphors are messed up. We don't have the right view of other people. We confess, Lord, that sometimes we would prefer to hold on to bitterness and anger than turn to you with grace and patience and perseverance with others. And we are asking God for some amazing work to be done in our hearts like this young man embodied for us this week. Help us to have the grace and favor of the Lord in our lives that we look to others with the joy and grace and patience and perseverance and forgiveness that you showed us. We pray your gospel would spread all over the world. And thank you, Lord, for patience 
and for persevering with us. We pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you.